Wisdom, 3ABR 87.6 FM, and I'm your host, Katerina Morrison. We are so lucky tonight to have a world-renowned fungi expert. We've got Dr. Alison Plow, who is an ecologist, environmental photographer, and honorary fellow at the Australian National University. Now, her research spans both in the Northern and Southern Hemisphere, where she's actively involved in conservation, conducting over 400 fungus forays over the last two decades. Now, um... The 5,300-year-old Iceman found in 1991 between Australia and Italy, they wore a well-preserved amulet of dried fresh mushrooms around his neck. So it seems that even though the Stone Age Earth's inhabitants recognised the power of the fungus growing in the darkness, so even ancient Chinese herbalists considered the reishi mushroom the most beneficial of all medicines, and the emperors of Japan believed the reishi granted them immortality. Now, I've got um, Alison on the phone here tonight. Uh, to uh, tell us a lot more about the fungi world. How are you going, Alison? I'm doing very well, thank you, Kat. How are you? Fantastic. Now, you've been involved with the Polo Bay community for over a decade and you've got an extensive knowledge, particularly um, of the Otway Forest and the astonishing diversity that we have here um, of the fungi. I do decade, actually closer to 20 years of, of working with the most fantastic people in the community and it's been so exciting for me to see people recognise that the forests are not just places of plants and animals but the fungi plays such a vital and often interconnective role in supporting the health and resilience of those forests. So I've been really inspired by the people I've met and the way their thinking has changed to embrace all of the biodiversity in those forests. So it's been an absolutely wonderful time for me. Yeah, well, I've been on one of those fungus forays and it's absolutely been just amazing what I've actually learnt. And I'm so oh, terrific. I've got to tell you at the moment, I'm so excited. The first Amanita came out on our property too, right underneath oh, that pine. But it's um, heading towards the Blackwood, like you said it would be. <laughs> Wait okay. towards the Blackwoods, yeah. Right. Look, I, I mean, despite the incredible turmoil and the, the harrowing and unforeseen scenarios we've got at the moment with COVID, I, I, I do think it's also a time of incredible possibility and opportunity. And I have to believe that because there's so much, you know, terrible, not to negate or overlook the awful and unimaginable trauma many people are experiencing. I think in, in some ways, you know, we can take some solace in the, the reports of fish returning to rivers and dolphins reclaiming marinas Amazing. and layers lifting, all of this. But I also think the forest, I mean, the forest is not going away and it's probably heaving a huge sigh of relief, actually, <laughs> that there's less, you know, less particulate matter in the year, yeah. in the air. And I feel like... This season, we could be in for a bumper fungus season in the forest. Well, it is fungus season, but before that, let's find out a little bit about you at the moment. So, how did you get onto that pathway of being such an expert, fungi expert? Oh, I'm not sure that I am. <laughs> but look, certainly, I mean, to me, it's, it's all interesting. Everything in nature is interesting. And I guess as a small child walking around or crawling around in the forest, everything about it was fascinating, Cat. Like whether it was the, you know, the beetles clambering through the leaf litter or whether it was the sundews glistening in the morning light or, or whatever it was, the orchids unfurling, it was all fascinating. And it wasn't just the aesthetics of these bizarre and beautiful things. It was also curiosity about what they were doing. But the fungi held another kind of allure and I think it was because they're, they're so ephemeral, like you see them there you come back to look at the next morning and it's gone it's like well, you know, how did I make sense of that? And I think that strange quality of being so ephemeral so short-lived and also the, the, the design or the, the, the strange forms of how they manifest was so kooky I just wanted to try and understand them. So I think initially 
what was an aesthetic interest that they captured my you know, my attention and my imagination then became more of a scientific curiosity, wanting to understand what are they doing? I mean, surely they're not just random decorations out no. there in the forest. You know? Surely they're doing something more than that. So I guess that sort of set me on the path. But I, I guess I don't consider myself a fungus expert in any way, but more so an enthusiast of everything in the forest and how they interact together. Recently, there has been some real talk about plants talking to one another using the internet. Um, of the fungi um, and that tree in your garden is probably hooked up to a bush several metres away thanks to the mycelia or the fungi um, they don't actually contain chlorophyll do they but by linking no, you're right. yeah but linking to the fungal network they can help um, out their neighbours by sharing nutrients and information or they can sabotage unwelcome plants you'll know a lot more about this than I do you're right. Look, it's become a really popular concept, and a lot of it was popularised by a book by a German forester called Peter Volleb, and I think The Secret Life of Trees, I think it's called, and yeah. his, his uh, book tapped into the research of a British Columbian scientist called Suzanne Simard, and she looked at exactly what you're talking about, at these interconnective networks of communication and sharing of resources between plant, plants and fungi, and hence why we often call it the wood wide web or the underground <laughs> internet, see. which is a, a great metaphor. But you're right, and fungi, you're right, they don't, they don't have chlorophyll, they don't photosynthesize. So, so how do they, they eat? Actually, well, just like us. <laughs> <laughs> We're not that different. So the plants utilise the sun. They're called autotrophs. They have chlorophyll. They get the energy directly from the sun. But fungi are just like animals in that they use digestion. We do it internally. So when we want to eat something, we put it into our mouths, into our digestive tract. Enzymes break down that food and we extract what we need. Fungi do exactly the same thing, but they do it externally. So they basically have this great array of enzymes that they secrete directly into the substrate. So they basically sit in their food and slobber and then they absorb the nutrients that they want. So it's the same sort of, exactly the same way that we get nutrition, but they do it externally rather than internally. But then they form these networks in plants because they get more energy from the sugars that the plants, that plants get sugars from the sun and they transport those to the fungi by these networks and the fungi return the favour by extending out the root system of the plant, allowing that plant to access more nutrients, more water, and they also release things like chemicals and into the soil to actually ward off pathogenic things that can damage the, the, the tree's roots. So we call this a mutually beneficial <laughs> two-way symbiosis. It's a lovely, I guess, marriage or alliance between two different groups of organisms, and we now know that this is what holds forests together. It's this relationship. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, extensive network of, of connectivity that actually is responsible for the health and architecture and resilience of forests. Now, 90% of land plants are mutually um, a, a benefit to, from relationships with fungi, aren't they? But um, there are, sometimes there can be some sub sabotage um, to unwelcome plants by spreading toxic chemicals through that particular network, isn't there? There's still some research going on exactly how these mechanisms work and we, we still don't fully understand this but certainly it's probably more so with invertebrates and other organisms or pathogenic species, disease-causing species that can threaten that tree. We certainly know that the fungus has this great arsenal of different chemicals, things like neurotoxins where they can poison things mm. like nematode worms that can damage the plant. In terms of other plants, I, I'm not, yeah, I don't know enough about whether that to really comment on that, but certainly even though they do have this huge array of chemicals that they use for all sorts of different reasons, both in defence 
and to assist the plant get the nutrients that it needs. Well, that's amazing because fungal networks also boost the the host plant's immune systems as well. It's something to Absolutely. really know at the moment. Yes, <laughs> we indeed. need to know with this uh, virus hanging around. That's so, right, yeah. Yeah, there's there's many uh, fungus. Now, going through a walk with you through Fungus 4A, um, I thought many fungi were edible, but I was, I was actually taken back to know that there's only um, a small amount that I could actually um, ingest without well, harming me. It depends if you're a Potteroo or a Wallaby. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we certainly know that a huge range of about at least a good 40 different species of mammals from Wallabies to Potteroos to Ascogales to Betongs to Bilbies, they all utilise fungi. And at this time of year, it can actually be up to about 90% of their diet. So we certainly know other mammals do. There's probably a great range of fungi that are available to humans as well. It's just that in Australia, our knowledge about edibility is a long way behind that of, say, our European counterparts, our continental European friends. They've been, have had much stronger traditions of collecting fungi and they know about a much larger suite of different fungi they can eat compared to what we know in Australia, although certainly we do have Indigenous knowledge as well. But I think there's a big difference between edibility and palatability. So there's probably a lot of mushrooms that are edible if you had to <laughs> eat them. But there's probably far fewer that are actually palatable that you can eat and actually want to eat them. So that, that, I think that's the big difference. Like many you probably could eat if you really had to if you were stuck out there in the forest. But the ones that are palatable, that's a much smaller selection certainly. Now you've been doing mycology for quite a while. You've also got a book coming out um, on edibility. Yeah. Can you talk so, us through? Yeah. Certainly. So that one actually goes to... I'm so excited about this one. (laughs) Oh, good. So I'm writing that one with my terrific colleague, Tom Bay. He's the senior mycologist at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne and he's also the honorary fellow to the Poisons Information Centre. So he's the poor bugger who gets called up in the middle of the night when someone's picked the wrong mushrooms and decided to eat them. So he brings wonderful toxicological knowledge to the book as well as his extensive experience in mycology. So we've been working together for about five years on this. And we're taking a little bit of a different approach. So rather than doing a field guide where there's 500 species or 100 species or, you know, oodles of different species, we just concentrate on a dozen edible species that are easy to recognize, that are you're very unlikely to mix them up, but we also talk about their toxic lookalike species as well. So we talk about other species as well as that dozen, but we focus on saying just learn one mushroom at a time, learn it in all its permutations yes. and combinations and get to know it really well. And then once you've got that one down, then do a second one. Because over all the years of working both in Australia and Europe, I've noticed that very few people eat more than about three or four species. You know, it's not like vegetables where we might eat dozens of different vegetables. Very few people eat, you know, a dozen different types of mushrooms. And that's why we thought, let's focus our efforts on a few mushrooms and rather than learning many, many mushrooms superficially, just learn a dozen really well and their two or three dozen toxic lookalikes. So, so you know, the number's creeping up here. And that way you, you'll never end up being a statistic. And we sort of think it's better to take a bit of a slow mushrooming approach where you learn things thoroughly and not just superficially. So it's a, it's a different concept to other field guides that exist, but we're hoping it'll prevent Tom getting those late-night calls about poisonings. 
Fantastic. I can't wait to get my hands on one. Look, experts say that there's more than a million species of fungi. Is that right? And we've only discovered about 5%. Yeah, look, we think true? So, and it could be even more than a million. I think the numbers are even higher than I think they're getting up to like 1.5 million. And I think in Australia, I think the numbers increased a bit now. We think we might be up to something like 30 or 40% that we've named here. But with all the ways we, like once upon a time, we described fungi by looking at the mushroom and describing its, its morphology or form, and then we gave it a name. But these days, it's all done with molecular, you know, with DNA sequencing. It's all done at wow. a molecular level, and they're suddenly going, wow, you know, one teaspoon of soil contains the spores of dozens of different species. So the rate of knowledge of how, how many fungi we have is just increasing exponentially. So the knowledge is growing at an amazing rate, and whether we actually, you know, can name them all before we start to lose them is another question altogether. Just amazing. So contrary to popular belief too, mushrooms are actually highly nutritious and they supply protein, amino acids and B vitamins and copper, magnesium, vitamin C, potassium, phosphorus, folate, selen and, and iron. And they're among the few food sources rich in trace mineral uh, germanium. I think that's where they actually get their immune stimulation um, promotion effects from. Um, they're thought to promote the efficient use of oxygen in the body and to prevent against damage from re- free radicals. Um, and and you know they they come in handy definitely at this this moment in time. Um, so certainly, probably I think probably the people who know the most about the nutritional or medicinal benefits of fungi probably the Chinese because they've actually probably know they've been used for thousands of years in Chinese medicine, but also here in Australia we know. Australian Aboriginal people, I mean, possibly they could have been using them for who knows, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 years. So I think we also have tremendous knowledge about those both nutritional and medicinal benefits of fungi here in Australia as well. It's just that unfortunately most of that knowledge hasn't been recorded in, in a way that is accessible to most European Australians. So it's a terrible shame that we don't know about the, the medicinal value of our Australian fungi. But certainly... Uh, the mushroom industry promotes <laughs> fungi as having tremendous nutritional value, as you just said. I think sometimes it can also be a little bit exaggerated, but okay. I, I do think, yeah. I always say that certainly, I mean, mushrooms are known, as you said, to have all those things and they have, you know, B12 and things like this and also minerals such as iron and copper and selenium and potassium and phosphorus that are so important to bodily functions such as red blood cell production. But I think, I always say, I think the best health benefit from fungi is the walk in the forest when you're looking for them. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think particularly now in this, you know, terrible situation we're all in, I think, you know, when we're all feeling, you know, a bit confronted being locked down, I think the wonderful thing is we can still go for that walk in the forest and the the mental and physical health benefits of that are just absolutely tremendous, as we all intuitively know. Now, you've talked lately about dirt matters and uh, what mushrooms or the fungi can actually do to rejuvenate our soils. Yes, certainly. And I think if we look in Australia at our traditional farming methods, a lot of those we've learnt from our European counterparts and a lot of the traditional farming has actually done terrible destruction to the soil. So a, a lot of fungi that provide that amazing network that you talked about earlier of that mycelium that stretches out and actually puts scaffolds of, of well, these great wefts of mycelium in the soil, holds the soil particles apart, allows it to be aerated, allows water to very gently trickle down through that network down to the deeper horizons of the soil. A lot of that framework 
has been lost from industrial agricultural soils because we basically because we, we disrupt it through things like tilling and compaction through the use of heavy machinery or through the excessive use of chemicals and nutrients or fire. All those things have destroyed that mycelial network. So there's no architecture or framework there in the soil. And instead, those plants don't have those fungal partners. Instead, we have to irrigate and we have to provide nitrates, phosphates and potassium, NPK, to supplement the work yeah. the fungi was doing. Yeah. But fortunately, through the, the farmers I've been working with the last few years, what's so exciting, Kat, is things are changing. And farmers mm. are recognising this. They're recognising that they're paying a fortune for their fertiliser, for their irrigation, that their soils, soils are blowing away because they don't have any... They're not soils, they're dirt, basically. There's no biological component it's just a mineral component as soon as we get a you know some wild weather all that topsoil blows away as we see in the dust storms that rage across the country but many farmers are saying how can i get the fungi back how can i get this architecture back in my soils so i get so excited working <laughs> with these farmers who are doing all sorts of wonderful things like not tilling and and like you know not over irrigating and not using heavy machinery to but to compresses and compacts the mycelium so i think we're a really interesting transition time in the way we think about agriculture and how we grow plants and the role of fungi in that. It's really synonymous too. Like there's so many metaphors that, that are synonymous with um, the microbiome in the gut as well. Absolutely. I mean, there's all these direct parallels. And, you know, we talk about human health, but you talk about forest health, and it's all the same sort of thing. It's, it's amazing, like isn't a it? Lot of, yeah, it really is. And sometimes when I listen to nutritionists or doctors talk, I think these metaphors apply exactly to the natural world and things that, you know, keeping diversity and all those sorts of things are very, very similar. And I think if we look after our bodies and look after our forests in the same way, we maintain all that biota and that diversity of biota that actually is so important to those symbioses. I think that's the kind of the key. Like we know now that humans, you know, we're not isolated organisms. We're actually a collective organism of all sorts of bacteria and viruses and fungi and all sorts of yeast and other things as well and that we're not just the sole organism that we rely on all these organisms to do things to help us function. I'm really excited about this time of year. I know that uh, Amanita just came up the other day, so obviously there'll be a lot more popping up. So... I'm just curious, while I sit there and, and watch that earth um, pop up, how they actually reproduce? Are they Do they reproduce sexually or asexually? You're going to take me down into the dire yeah. depths of fungal yeah. sex, aren't you, Kat? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the answer is both. So fungi, they're, they're complex organisms and they're very different to animals and plants in terms of the way they reproduce, but also just also in the ways we think about them. I mean... This is what to me is so fascinating about fungi is that we can't just, just shove them in a box and think of them as, as being like plants or being like animals. They're very, very different organisms and we know that the basic reproductive unit of a fungus is a thing called a spore. So this is a, a microscopic, mm. uh, it's like the equivalent of seeds in plants and yet they are different to seeds in, in some ways as well because they don't carry a food supply like a seed does. But the spore is the basic reproductive unit and I'm sure you've probably seen a puffball puff out at schools or those that <laughs> were there. We all yeah, we've seen them. But I think that the spores are probably almost a secondary reproductive strategy because that mycelium, that network you mentioned earlier, that's the growing, feeding, living part of the fungus. And that can live technically. No one comes and digs it up or squashes it or does something nasty to it. That can live indefinitely. It's got no lifespan, I and mean, that can just keep on. So long as we don't break it or crush it or burn it or do something to it, that 
can go on indefinitely, so long as it's got enough food there in the soil, enough organic matter. And then the spores are almost like a secondary backup strategy. If it gets worried that it's being threatened, it pops up its mushroom and, and the it's spores amazing. are released and then those, yeah. But what I, the part I really like about fungi is that, you know, this notion of male and female that we talk about with plants and animals, we can define something as being male or female. Well, fungi don't kind of subscribe to something as simplistic as that. <laughs> <laughs> like, some, I mean, forget LGBTI. Like, seriously, fungi, some fungi can have up to 22,000 sexes. So I think it's... Uh, yes. And most of them are compatible with each other. And so there's this whole other so way... So they are compatible with each other. Yeah. We've got so, so much to learn, haven't we? Yeah, we use these very limited binaries and dichotomies mm, of thinking about the world yeah. and fungi going, no, we're much more interesting than that. We've <laughs> got so much to learn yeah, right in front of our yeah. eyes. Now, you've made us so aware of the fungi in the Otways. You're just amazing. One of my favourite, the bioluminescence that come out, the beautiful glow. Oh, they're great. And they're out of the moment in the Otways. They're there. You're talking about the ghost fungus, Omphalotus nidiformis. Is that the one you're thinking, the big one that glows of this kind of kooky green? Is that what you're thinking of? There's a couple of bioluminescent species. There's another little one called Little Blue Lights, which is a mycena or a bonnet fungus. It's only the size of your little fingernail, but there's these big green glowing uh, ghost fungi that you'll find around the bases of often eucalypt trees. Have you seen these out in the forest? Oh, are you still there? I think I might have lost you, Katie. You're still there? You there? Yep, got Sorry, you. I don't know what happened there. Sorry about that. Um, at Mates that. Rest, when we went for uh, the foray walk. Ah, terrific, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, and did you go back there at night to see them? Yes, definitely. <laughs> they're amazing, aren't they? They're, they're just they're absolutely actually, amazing. They're so um, intriguing and enchanting, and they have this compound that has a wonderful name. It's called Luciferase, <laughs> and um, it basically causes it to bioluminesce and produce that curious, green glow and people often say you know why why do they do that like what's the point what's the advantage or why would a fungus glow in the dark like sort of seems like an interesting thing to do but there must be some reason surely and for a long time we thought it was to do with trying to attract things like moths or nocturnal vectors like animals that might brush up against it and you know disperse the spores but some people did some research where they looked at the number of insects or potential vectors visiting the ghost fungi, and then they looked at other fungi that didn't glow, and it turns out exactly the same number of insects were on the fungi that didn't glow. So we realise it's actually not about that. So I'm sticking with my theory that it helps wombats find the way through the forest at night. Oh, that is amazing. <laughs> it's <just> ethereal. <laughs> Absolutely ethereal. So what is your favourite uh, fungi? Do you have a, a favourite type? Look, I'm down to my short list of 963, <laughs> so it's God's really sake. hard to choose. I mean, it's like choosing between your favourite children cat. I mean, you can't, <laughs> no, you can't do that. do <laughs> that. Oh, look, there's some that I, I love because they just are so endearing and so, you know, endearing and, 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 and what shall I say, um, oh, just because of their absolute sheer beauty. But then there's others that are so bizarre that I can't figure out why you'd want to smell like a rotting, you know, animal on the side of the road <laughs> yeah. or something. So those ones that are really kookily disgusting are quite wonderful as well. But, oh, gee, I think, do you know, I think, to be absolutely honest, it's not particular fungi I'm intrigued with. It's that whole underground 
network of processes and functionality. That's the bit to me that's more intriguing than the manifesting as mushrooms. It's all that stuff going on underneath the soil. That's when fungi to me becomes so astonishingly archaic to imagine that network more so than the actual physical mushroom, if you know what I mean. Wow. Are we seeing a new type of fungus because of global warming as well? Look, certainly we're fungus seeing... fungus appeared, yeah, out yeah, of nowhere? Yeah, certainly we think some are getting an advantage from changes in temperature and changes in season lengths. And the thing is, no one's studying this in Australia. No, no one's out there actually looking at this and trying to do any long-term studies to understand it. There's a little bit in Scandinavia, a little bit in the UK, looking at the effects of climate change on fungi. But what we do know, if we look at animals and plants and we're seeing changes there, we can sort of expect a mirroring effect in the fungi as well. So certainly some fungi will get an advantage and it could be those fungi that we don't necessarily want to have an advantage and others will get wiped out because they're just too sensitive to deal with those changes. But we think at the moment that the actual fungus season is getting longer. And I love that because I've got more time to be out there in the forest. <laughs> but from a You're always out there in the forest. All the messages we get are that you're out there in the forest. Yeah, well that's yeah, that's right, where my office is. But I, but I think what does that mean? Like Fungi are the great recyclers. They're decomposing organic matter. They're breaking down, you know, recycling all that woody matter in the forest. Can you go through that um, for our audience? What happens, um, I know that um, when we go on forest walks, that certain logs appear quite a lot lighter. And that's funny. Can you explain that process? Yes, certainly. So we talk about plants as being the producers. Fungi, uh, animals as being the consumers. But fungi are the great recyclers. And by that I mean... They, the mycelium, they, they have the chemicals to break down all those recalcitrant compounds, things like what we call lignin or cellulose. They're the compounds that give wood its hardness, its structure. When you pick up a stick and it's hard and you can't push your fingernail into it, that's because of these strong molecules called lignin and cellulose. What fungi do, they secrete enzymes that can actually break apart the lignin and the cellulose and reduce it back to its constituent parts. And that's when you can push your finger into that log. When the mm-hmm. log is soft, that's because the fungi have broken down those structural compounds. But if we don't have the fungi, nothing can break that down. And so those chemicals and compounds and nutrients are never released for plants and animals to use them. So the fungi are the great recyclers that break down and they release all those compounds and nutrients. So without that, if we didn't have fungi to do that, we'd, we'd be up to our, you know, kilometres deep in leaf litter and it wouldn't actually break down. So it's the fungi that make those things available, make them what they call biologically available for plants and animals to utilise. So fungi play this amazing role in decomposing or recycling organic matter in the forest. Just absolutely amazing. It's a- absolutely everywhere, aren't they, fungi, yeast, absolutely all around <laughs> us. You're right. Sometimes people say, they send me an email, they say, oh, where do fungi grow? And I say, well, where don't they grow? Have you had a look in your shower bay or your armpits? Or, you know, they, they really have managed to colonise pretty much every terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. There's very few places where you won't find them. Even places like where you see a, a glacier retreat, for example, in New Zealand or in parts of Europe, on the rock where that glacier retreats, the first thing 
to colonise that rock will be lichen, and lichen is a form of fungi. And so they're very, sometimes we call them extremophiles or lovers of the extremes because they can colonise habitats where virtually nothing else can withstand those, you know, extremes of cold or temperature or salt or, or exposure or whatever. So there's very few habitats that fungi can't colonise and even our marine and freshwater habitats have fungi in them. There's a lot of medicinal benefits that I know about fungi, but um, has there also been the potential threat that fungi or certain fungi present to human health, um, that they've been implicated in several die-offs of oh, species? Absolutely. Look, we, we know about these incredible blights, you know, the potato blight in Ireland, and we know about, you know, the spot on the roses and, you know, you know wheat crops and barley crops being wiped out by fungi, and we know about, you know, yeasts and things like candida can cause terrible issues for people but I think often what we do is we scapegoat the fungus as the cause of Mm, the problem mm -hmm. rather than recognising it as a symptom of poor management. So when we create a monoculture which essentially is poor management because monocultures don't exist naturally in nature, there's always diversity, then we create a situation where the fungus goes, oh great, I love grapes or I love potatoes, I'm going to eat them all. You know, like it's not, the fungus isn't the cause of the problem, it's the symptom of poor management. And when we see things like, you might have heard of Phytophthora, which actually yeah. is in the fungus, or Armillaria, or these things, sometimes gardeners write and say, I've got these fungi in my garden, how do I get rid of them? Well, there's, there's no chance, you're never going to get rid of them, there's always going to be fungal spores. But what you can do is increase the resilience of that garden, maximise the diversity of habitats and microclimates to support the other fungi, that keep that problematic one in check. And it's just like with our own bodies. When we get, you know, candida or something I was thinking exactly the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, we're run down. We haven't been looking after ourselves. And the yeast takes over and goes, great, these are the conditions I love. You've been eating badly. You've been doing this and doing that. And they take off. So I think it's often... And I even think, you know, we could look at COVID in the same way. I think it could be seen as a symptom of us not looking after the world. Both at, at so many different levels, environmentally, socially medically, politically, in so many ways that we've been taking too many things for granted. So I think sometimes if we really think about cause and effect or symptom, causes and symptoms, it's another framework to really understand these sorts of problems. So some people have spoken about um, certain species that have the potential to be major biological weapons. Could they be? Look, you know, certainly we know that damage... I mean, that microfungi, particularly things like moulds, can do, and you put them in the hands of the wrong mm. people, you know, certainly that can be problematic. But if we didn't provide things like the monocultures <laughs> that those fungi could take advantage I totally of, agree. if yeah. we farmed in a different way, then we could prevent that from happening. So again, I think it comes back to looking at our own responsibility within it. And when, you know, there's certainly there's always, we, we know in historically there's been all sorts of problems with fungi taking over and yeah they're incredible opportunists they're the ultimate unruly opportunists as I often call them but I think it's also about well we've created a situation that allows that gives them tremendous advantage yeah we've um, seen a lot of monocrops create creating those types of issues what would you like to see in the agricultural space what would I like to see mm. Oh, look, I'm already seeing it, Kat. Like, I'm seeing farmers so often they say, you know, I'm breaking up this 
this crop with a row of native plants or I'm just putting right. in smaller yeah. plots and mixing it up and, and they're thinking about how to get that structure back in soils and they're reducing their reliance on, you know, antifungals and all these things and actually recognising they don't need antifungals or they don't pro- plant monocultures. And I, I'm already seeing these changes and I get so inspired and there's all these sorts of organisations popping up everywhere now, you know, regenerative farmers and you know, different soil-based groups who are looking at trying to get that structure back. And I think... It's happening. I think the best thing we can do is mimic what's there in nature. And of course, we don't have, you know, huge amounts, the huge amounts of grains and things that we need growing naturally in nature. But I think we are trying to mimic nature more in terms of trying to get that architecture back in soil and trying to get the diversity back in the plants that we grow. I mean, I had this farmer recently at a workshop. He was so inspiring. (laughs) And he said that every year, I can't remember what crop he had, but he said he had to bring in X number of bees to pollinate the crop and it cost him a huge amount and huge amount for irrigation, a huge amount for fertiliser and chemical use. And he said all he's done is planted, you know, every, I can't remember what distance apart, he just plant rows of things like grevilleas and calistamins and other native plants. And he says now that native flies, bees and wasps do 70% of his pollination. There you go, you're listening out thought, there. <laughs> you know, what an amazing story. And he managed to achieve that in about five years. And I thought, this is the stuff that makes me so excited. You know, <laughs> we, we can do it differently. Whether we can scale it up, that's the great challenge. You know, we can do this stuff small scale. And also, of course, we've got the great challenge of, of big fertiliser and big agriculture to contend with. But I think if enough people do it, you know, they say if you get 25% of a society thinking differently, you can tip tip the balance. <laughs> so I, I have great hope, resourceful hope. Fantastic, yeah. What's a common myth about um, fungi that you can well, debunk? Look, there's so many. <laughs> I mean, I'm fascinated in these cultural histories and all these myths about fungi and you know, they're often associated with things like the supernatural and witchcraft and all the things that are inexplicable and they're also very strongly mm. associated with women because traditionally women, mm. women actually carry the fungal law, L-O-R-E, and pass it on to their daughters and granddaughters and because when you think about when fungi come up, it's often in autumn and perhaps the men were doing the heavier work of harvesting the fields, the women were gathering the fungi and so they held the knowledge about which ones were toxic which ones are medicinal Mm. and of course some women decided to use some of that knowledge against philandering husbands or other undesirables (laughs) and that knowledge gradually got taken away from them and those who had it were called witches so they got burned at the stake and I Mm. think it's pretty fascinating but then from that a whole lot of mythology about things like fairy rings. I mean, in German language, they call them hexen rings, witches' rings, and, you know, they were made by witches, or if you stood in one, you'd turn into a witch or all these terrible things. So this is wonderful. What is going on with those? Oh, look, that's spaceships. That shows you where a spaceship landed on your lawn, and that's the ring Thank around you. the edge of the spaceship. Yeah, so, okay. <laughs> so what, what you're seeing there, if you can imagine that mycelium, that network of fibres under the soil, what it does, it's feeding. It's feeding under the soil, feeding on nutrients, and as it feeds, it expands and grows, and it pops up its mushrooms at the edge of that feeding body mm-hmm. in, in a ring form. And each year, as the mushroom, the, sorry, the fungus grows underneath the soil, the ring actually gets bigger. So for some reason, its mushrooms come up at the periphery of that actual mycelium. So we, we get that ring or arc of mushrooms. But I, I personally prefer the spaceship theory. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> now, um... The other topic that uh, I guess is quite controversial at the moment is psychedelics. Do you talk about that at all? Oh, look, it's not my speciality, yeah. but I was so 
certainly really inspired. The other day I did a panel at a film showing in Melbourne in Carlton a few weeks ago and there's a wonderful specialist out at Monash University who's doing some fantastic work on mm. a species called psilocybe, which is yeah. the odd way, as you probably know, it's full of and it's known as a hallucinogenic <laughs> fungus or <laughs> keeping in mind that, that hallucin- it. <laughs> yeah, it's also, people don't often realise this, a hallucinogen is actually also a neural toxin, it's a mm. nerve toxin, mm-hmm. so something to keep in mind. But he's been looking at the value of psilocybe in teaching, in, in, in um, treating all sorts of terrible mental health yes. challenges, such yes. as you know, post-traumatic stress and depression and end-of-life anxiety and all sorts of things. And several other countries have now actually lifted, a couple of states in America, surprisingly, and I think in the UK they've actually lifted the sort of limits and ban on these fungi to enable them to be used in this wonderful medicinal way. Yes. I just think it's incredibly exciting. But, um, you know, to see what, what potential they could have. It's amazing. Terence McKenna talks about achieving the same states of um, taking psychedelics as exposing oneself to um, being in a mo- uh, movement and meditative practice. Um, some believe what takes one to learn the experience of 20 years of solitude up high in the mountains can be delivered after one hour of that plant ingestion. Um, and Look, yeah. yeah. There's, there's all sorts of, you know, Wasson was another mm. guy, American, who did a lot of research in the psilocybe. And, and unfortunately, oh, we followed Sweet with America and other countries where we were just banged, you know, banned it as a class one drug rather than looking yeah. at other problematic yeah. things. But I I do think it's it's an unknown. And part of, I think, mm. if it comes through fear, we don't know enough about the fungus. So what do we do? We ban it. It's sort of a classic response. But I think, you know, they, they could offer a huge possibility into medicinal values but the thing to keep in mind is that it currently is classified as a class one or class one drug or whatever so you can get a pretty whacking big you know fire conviction even i think even get a prison sentence for possession of them so it's just something to keep in mind that's right are there any resources or even advice that have really helped you on your journey any resources yeah or even advice that's really helped you yeah, look, I get it all from the forest. <laughs> like for me, every every log of wood on the ground is an amazing archive, an amazing library of species, and a, an amazing you know book of information. If you can read the tracks and traces through the wood of the species that have been there, I mean, I, I had a wonderful opportunity to do a project a few years ago at, at the Australian National University and had that wonderful Fantastic. libraries and resources and people there. But I still think most of what I've learnt, Cat, has been in situ. I mean, I think I'm much yeah, more a, in the field. a, a naturalist in that traditional sense of just the the observing and listening and watching over extended periods seeing how things change see which mushrooms come back the next year and which ones don't and trying to work out why i do think we've got wonderful written resources and field guides and online resources but I, i think most of what i learned is about using that having that sensorial connection you know learning fungi from their smell and their touch and what they do being being present in the forest with fungi which is why i love running forays rather than doing, you know, things through in, in the classroom. I think when we're out in the forest, when you want to learn about something, if you can learn it with all those different senses, it becomes part of memory much more simply than me just lecturing or showing you a picture. If you can hold that mushroom <laughs> and, and, you know, smell it and feel that amazing texture, I think you embed that memory much more readily. Your passion is always infectious and your observation skills have always um, obviously given us um, a whole plethora of incredible photography that we've seen in oh, the fungo world. You. So you're world-renowned in the photography area too. <laughs> thank you. It's very kind. What has been your biggest accomplishment in your career thus far? Oh, 
wow, gee, I've, I've never really thought of it in that sense. <laughs> to me, it's sort of an, unge- an ongoing thing. I mean, 